This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Welcome back. Hope you had a long Thanksgiving holiday weekend and a safe one. Lots of people did. Some people with uh, family and friends, which the health officials say could lead to a major increase in cases. Surge upon the surge. They did warn us that we were all better off staying at home. So why did so many people not listen? Are we just bad at this whole containment thing? I think we're bad at this whole (laughs) containment thing. Here's your theory. Yeah. An ER doctor says he's worried about a holiday surge, especially with people shopping. It's not all bad news, though. Another drug maker is applying with the FDA for early approval of a vaccine. And we'll get into all things vaccines, like what we can expect and when and if people will trust them enough to get a shot. New National COVID Testing Network, or a National COVID Testing Network, could be key to slowing down the virus, getting places like schools back open again, so why don't we have one? Is the end of the NFL season at risk? The virus continues to hit teams and postpone games. But we start with the rising number of cases. Dr. Dennis Carroll, chair of the Global Virome Project. So, doctor, what would a surge on top of a surge look like? Well, it's it's safe to say it will be um, potentially catastrophic. We're already averaging as a nation uh, between 150 and 180,000 new cases right every day. And as we add on to that with the concerns that people did not really abide by the stay home and uh, protect yourself during the Thanksgiving holidays, that we'll see multiples of that number going up. Um, And that does not bode well for what we'll be seeing over the course of between now and Christmas. Um, Remember, from the time of exposure, we will not start seeing the indications of people showing up sick and positive uh, for about two weeks. And then it's another two weeks after that that we start seeing serious illness. And then shortly after that, we start seeing additional deaths. So somewhere in the middle of December, just on the um, you know the precipice of Christmas, we're going to start seeing a significant increase and the numbers of people that are now confirmed infected. And by Christmas, it's safe to say that the mortality that we're going to be dealing with on a daily basis will be a significant increase over uh, the numbers we've been seeing over the last two weeks. So So none of this looks good. What is it about us, the collective us, that we can't get it together? Is it that we don't conceptualize that it's these millions of little decisions made every day that's a big problem? Is it the bias that my friends, my family aren't going to infect me so I can still see them? This late in the game, are we just too tired of all of this? Well, you've given three, each of which are valid explanations for why we are not really bringing this virus under control. We're tired. Um, We don't necessarily take it as seriously as we should take it. Um, and we just make casual, um, you know, efforts to protect not just ourselves, but protect our friends and our family. And it's that lack of diligence uh, and really prioritizing our behaviors to be consistent with, um, you know, safe practices. That is why the virus, quite frankly, is having a field day. Um, we're making it very easy for this virus to spread. 
And with that, we're, you know, creating a problem for ourselves that uh, will be one for the record books. Well, let me let me be, uh, and you tell me if it's an overstatement, but let me be uh, really harsh and very undiplomatic about about what I'm about to say. Uh, in in effect, people who disregarded all these things and traveled for Thanksgiving, and maybe you're thinking of traveling for Christmas, they are in effect, are they not, sort of walking bioterrorism weapons? Well, they're certainly doing everything possible to spread the virus, and with that, well, they're killing the virus people, aren't they? Death, I mean, right? they're killing, yeah, so they're killing people. They're 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 doing everything possible to allow more death um, in this country. So there's no question about that. Um, you know, what do you do about it? As you said, we're nine months now into this pandemic, and the the one thing that's been consistent is our collective failure as a nation uh, to really, um, as a nation, uh, bring this virus under control. And it's through our behavior. So, you know, are we going to learn? Are we going to get better at it? Um, I, you know, our track record has not been good to date. Dr. Dennis Carroll, chairs of the Global Virum Project Board previously, director of the U.S. Agency for International Development's Pandemic, Influenza, and Emerging Threats Unit. Is there anything that can be done to slow things down, especially when people need to shop for the holidays? Chris Colbert's ER doctor, assistant program director at the Emergency Medicine Residency Program, University of Illinois, Chicago. He talked to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about shopping safely. Our recommendation, in fact, is that there are ways to shop and also have a fulfilling shopping experience in 2020. Simple things such as minding social distancing, abiding by the designated entry and exit areas of most buildings, coupled with the signs and all sorts of identifications of where consumers can stand while in line and maintaining distance, keeping on the mask as well would be great. And to bring hand sanitizer, utilize the hand sanitizer during transactions. And also this is a good time to utilize payless purchases with your cell phone as an example as well. Are we, you know, speaking of payless uh, ways of, of buying your merchandise, are we finding that people are contracting coronavirus because they touched something that, that someone else did, like a door handle or a pay station or, or that keypad if you use your, your debit card when you're checking out? Again, yes. Uh, this is the theory behind transitioning a any sort of virus is exposure and contact. So that contact can be, in fact, hard surfaces, which one is exposed to and another person touches that area and or fomites or droplets from one's mouth during conversations, singing and or coughing or sneezing. Good info. Thanks so much. Always good to talk with you. Dr. Chris Colbert, ER doctor, assistant program director of the Emergency Medicine Residency Program at UIC. Moderna, latest drug company to apply with the FDA for emergency use of its vaccine. The hope is that the first vaccination doses could be ready to go by the end of this month. This is another vaccine with a high efficacy rate. Dr. Lee Riley, Division Head of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. So, Doctor, take us through some of these numbers with Moderna. Sure. So, uh, you know, so a couple of weeks ago, they came out with uh, the kind of preliminary um, results of their study showing that the vaccine that they developed was 94% effective. 
And so today they came out with even better news. They did further uh, analysis of the data, and they show that if you look at the people who had really uh, severe disease, I think there were 30 altogether who had really bad disease, uh, and none of them were in the people who got vaccinated. And so all of the severe outcomes were in those people who got the placebo. So this is a very good news. So this vaccine not only protects uh, uh, against, uh, you know, infection, it protects against severe diseases, which is exactly what we want in a vaccine. Okay, but so now let me be the fly in the ointment. Uh, and uh, uh, and for the purposes of transparency, and I've mentioned this on the show, I've, I'm in the Pfizer trial, but that aside, there's a problem with both of these studies, and that is that we're getting this information essentially from news releases. Uh, to my knowledge, neither Pfizer nor Moderna have published anything. Nothing has been peer-reviewed. We're going off of what they say uh, from an independent committee. I get that. But have you seen any actual independent data? No, no, you're correct that, you know, everything we've been hearing about what the, uh, the companies report, and you're absolutely right. But, you know, eventually uh, these things will come out in report. And, and you know, and as you know, there are all these uh, independent uh, uh, committees that are going to be evaluating themselves uh, the analysis that uh, these companies did. And so, you know, we'll uh, get those reports as, as well. Um, you know, from what we've seen in the past uh, and uh, some of the releases that these companies have made, they've collaborated eventually with the uh, peer-reviewed uh, uh, analysis. You know, and so, so I'm, you know, I'm more, I guess, trusting of, of the data that they've presented to the uh, media. So let's say, yeah, that these numbers are right, or that they're pretty close. Once we get further on down the line, what can it tell us about how this will be used? in practice. I mean, let's forward a few months time. Obviously, sure. it's, it's healthcare workers and things like that are the first rounds. But if this is really good at preventing severe cases in people who are, you know may have a tough time, is that the kind of case group that you give the Moderna vaccine to? And then if I'm you know 25 and I'm in really good health, I know I have to wait, A. But B, I can probably take something else, whether it's the AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson or something that maybe maybe that rate isn't as good. Yeah, so you know we have to see. I mean, clearly uh, the distribution of the uh, vaccine has to be staggered, as you say, starting with the uh, healthcare workers and then going probably to the highly vulnerable people, people who are vulnerable for uh, severe outcomes. Um, but uh, for people, you know, such as yourself, uh, uh, it's not. You know, you don't necessarily need to be protecting yourself. Uh, but what's important is if you do get infected, can you still infect other people? And if this vaccine can actually interrupt transmission from uh, young people to others, then this will really be uh, uh, the kind of vaccine we want. Uh, in order to establish what we call herd immunity, it has to also interrupt transmission from people who are uh, who don't necessarily get severe disease or who even get asymptomatic infection. Can this vaccine also prevent asymptomatic infection? If it can do that, then, then this is what exactly what we need well, to, and, to and, really stop the transmission. And, and here comes that fly in the ointment again. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we hate to be such a downer, but we don't know from either of these uh, companies uh, whether or not these vaccines just prevent illness or do they prevent the transmission of the illness. And perhaps more importantly, we don't know how long these vaccines will last. 
Exactly. No, you're absolutely correct. We don't know. We're, right now, we don't have any data about whether it can uh, prevent asymptomatic infection or if it can prevent transmission. You know, I think it's going to take more time uh, for us to get uh, that type of data. And then, uh, yes, uh, you're also correct that uh, we don't know how long the vaccine is going to last. Now, the good thing about the vaccine, as opposed to natural infections, that it can be given again. And so, uh, you know, if, it, if we, they show that the antibody response wanes over time, all they have to do is just revaccinate them. So that's, that's the advantage of having a vaccine rather than being naturally infected. Dr. Lee Riley, Division Head of Infectious Diseases, Vaccinology, UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Coming up after this short break, if there's a vaccine but no one gets it, does it really work? How good will these COVID-19 vaccines be? Will people trust them enough? thing about vaccines is they're not very good if people don't feel comfortable with them and don't get them. KYW's Matt Leon talks to Dr. Annette Raboli, dean of the Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. She explains all things vaccine. So this is really a significant big development, as you say. We've been waiting for these vaccines. They've been on a fast track with regard to the study of them, and uh, they're finally coming to fruition. Now, initially, the Food and Drug Administration put a um, efficacy parameter on them of about 50%. They said that they would give an emergency use authorization to vaccines that met 50%. So most people were expecting that these vaccines would come in with about 50 to 70% efficacy. But when the results were just recently released based on the interim analyses of these phase three trials, all of them are coming in with very high efficacy of 95% for the Pfizer vaccine, 94.5%, again, pretty much the same number for the Moderna vaccine. And most recently, AstraZeneca, uh, who has done their vaccine in conjunction with Oxford, actually gave a range. They had two dosing regimens. One was about 60-some-odd percent, around 70%. And the other one was also 90%. They looked at these two dosage regimens. So these are all coming in very, very high. Now, we might say that efficacy in the vaccine trial is different from effectiveness, which is a, the real world situation. You know, when you have participants in the trials, sometimes people with certain illnesses get excluded and uh, it may not work out the same. The other thing is the effectiveness is also predicated on people accepting these vaccines and taking them. You know, a lot of them have new technology associated with them. So the Pfizer product and the Moderna product are what we call genetic vaccines. They're uh, messenger RNA vaccines. The AstraZeneca product has an adenovirus vector. So these vaccines are relatively new. The adenovirus vectors have been used previously. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern among people about whether they will want to be in the first groups getting these vaccines, et cetera. But the vaccines will only get us out of sort of the dark days of this if people accept them. 
you know, there's a portion of the population and it's not as small as I think some people think that are very anti any vaccine. How concerned are you that that's going to prolong this and how big a hurdle is that getting through to those people? How important that this is? Very concerned. So one thing I do want to point out that efficacy and effectiveness are not the same thing. They're not the same. So the effectiveness may be lower in the real world as we're doing this. But certainly, you know, the acceptance and, uh, you know, voluntary vaccination, because these programs will be voluntary. The sooner we get our citizens vaccinated, the sooner we'll have some ending of this. Now, the other thing to realize about the vaccine, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, is for each individual who gets vaccinated, we won't know if we've mounted an effective antibody response. So as long as there is a pandemic, we still need to wear our mask, do our distancing, our hand hygiene, the precautions, you know, the simple yet effective precautions that we know. So until we have the pandemic declared over, the vaccine is not the panacea. New research from a group of economists at UCLA and Harvard show a national COVID testing network could provide quick and ready-to-go tests for anyone who needs it, and that it would likely be key to opening up schools and businesses again. Is that realistic? Andrew Atkinson, professor of economics and finance at UCLA, co-authored the new study. So, Andrew, how does this work out in the real world? We're actually going to find out the answer to that question very quickly. Because over in the United Kingdom, they are actually implementing such a program. They uh, have launched something they call Operation Moonshot that they will use to test everyone in Great Britain uh, once a week. They want to do 10 million tests a day. Putting that in perspective, here in the U.S., we're doing a little bit more than 1 million tests per day. They have just begun to pilot this in Liverpool, where they're testing the entire city of Liverpool, and they're planning to roll this out in the new year uh, for the country as a whole, uh, as they and the rest of us wait for a vaccine to appear. So the idea is you do enough testing, you can find the cases faster. I mean, we kind of know the idea because this is what we've been talking about the whole time. But the cost of doing that, and this is what your study shows, right? The cost of doing that, uh, these different points in time, periodic testing, more than, than outweighs the, the, or the benefits, the tax benefits, the economic benefits, more than outweigh the cost of, of all those tests, right? Yes. So, I mean, we did calculations based on a model and kind of the key inputs are, um, you have to get the cost of the test down. Uh, the standard test that you get now, the, the PCR test, it's called, uh, is very accurate, but very expensive. Depending on where in the U.S. you take it, it might cost between 50 and and $100 per test. And so that's really too expensive for testing everyone in the country. So the idea that we're pursuing and they're pursuing in the United Kingdom is you use a cheaper test first that is not as accurate, a screening test. Then if you were to come up and get a positive result on this cheaper test, then you would go get 
the fancy and very accurate PCR test. So what this program needs to do to be cost effective is to add um, this earlier or this faster simple screening test. It costs between two and five dollars instead of 50 to 100 dollars. And our study was really designed to say that approach is cost effective. Uh, it has pluses and minuses, but it is cost effective and should bring uh, big economic and fiscal benefits. Andrew Atkinson, professor of economics, finance, UCLA. This has been quite the NFL season, thanks to the pandemic. The Denver Broncos just played a game with no real quarterback as they were all out due to coronavirus restrictions. A big game between Baltimore and Pittsburgh. As, I like saying Pittsburgh. It's one of those cities that <laughs> I like saying it. It's like Pittsburgh. Uh, a big game between Baltimore and here it comes again. Pittsburgh. They'll send you a postcard. <laughs> and uh, the 49ers, they can't actually play at home because Santa Clara County has the ban on sports. So what's going on? Jason Gay, sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. So Jason, what is happening? You know, I think, first of all, this is not a kind of classic bubble structure, what we saw with the NBA successfully pulling off the end of its regular season and playoff campaign. They were, you know, consolidated that all into a campus on Disney World in Orlando, uh, this is quite a bit different. You're talking about teams in their home cities. Football teams are much bigger operations than basketball teams. There's a lot of sort of moving parts here. So the fact that you have teams playing in regions where the coronavirus pandemic is still a you know, significant issue, not to say that it isn't an issue everywhere, but it's 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 not immune from the sort of regional upticks that we've seen in many communities um that compared uh, paired with the fact that you have you know again sort of big organization big structure lots of meetings dinners interestingly my journal colleagues a couple of months ago did a piece about they weren't really seeing any evidence that there was any transmission happening on field you know the idea of even a contact sport where players are you know at close uh, range tackling each other um, there wasn't much evidence to suggest that that was some sort of transmission problem. In fact, what the problem really was was when players were gathering for you know, dinners, lunches, even team meetings. And that's what really did in the Broncos over the weekend was a quarterback team meeting where they had three of their backup quarterbacks at risk of exposure. So you stop all those and everybody gets the message again, try and stay you know, on like a personal lockdown unless you're going to and from a game and you see how that goes? Or do you need to look at how you could pull off a bubble? I mean, how do you get through the rest of this? Well, I, I think that, you know, the NFL is trying sort of to be punitive right now. I think there's no question what they did with the Broncos yesterday was sending a little bit of a message about the importance of taking this seriously, you know, in off field meetings and wearing masks and things like that, which is what the, the quarterbacks got knocked for. Um, but I think as you move towards the postseason and you have a situation where playoff games and these are, again, the biggest marquee television events of the year. You know, you look at the end of the year television ratings, NFL games compose about 95 percent of the most watched television entertainment in this country. So these are enormously lucrative things. And I think there's going to be enormous pressure for the NFL to make sure these games happen. If it means that they have to regionalize it and create some semblance of a bubble, you remember that baseball did sort of a, you know, half and half, you know, part of it was in the West Coast, some of it was in Texas, uh, bubble type situation. I think you might see that. I mean, the, the, the importance here, of course, is trying to make the games happen from the NFL standpoint, at least. We're getting so close to a coronavirus vaccine approval. 
Criminals are, though, too. The feds say people need to watch out for vaccine scams. Investigators are learning about how the vaccine will be packaged and getting the message out to field agents. They're creating a mass database of information from more than 200 companies so they can be prepared to spot fakes and crack down on fraud. They're monitoring tens of thousands of false websites and looking for evidence of fake cures sold online. You know what I still think about? Like it's a cartoon image in my yeah. head whenever I hear about scams is the guy in the trench coat selling the watches. Yeah. You know, yeah. it still always pops in like there's your criminal. You know what I'm thinking about right now? Pittsburgh. <laughs> it just came into my head before. I can't get it out of my head. That's what Pittsburgh does to me. Once I hear it, I can't get rid of it. If any of you are in Pittsburgh, send him an email. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can find us in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh.